0: upon this So what did we say that he prefers to quote from the Prophet Sallallahu If he doesn't find it, he will quote from the Sahaba The Tabi'een And if he doesn't find anything the, the furthest he will go is to quote from Generally, some exceptions Generally, is to quote from Ibn Jarir al-Tabari So he's telling you that Ibn Jarir al-Tabari It's understood He didn't say there is consensus But what you understand from his Tafseer is that there is consensus that the name Ar-Rahman is more emphatic than the name Ar-Rahim. It has more emphasis in it. And he said, and in the tafsir of some of the Salaf, some of the early generations, is that which indicates this. As has been previously mentioned from the Athar, from the narration, uh, from Isa alayhi salam that he said Ar-Rahman is Rahman al-Dunya wal akhirah and Ar-Rahim is Rahim al akhirah this is one of the narrations but what he says when he says an Al-Athar here it indicates to you that this is not a hadith from the Prophet sallallahu wasallam rather it's something that some people said that Isa said Rahman is the Rahman of the Dunya and the akhirah, and Rahim is the Rahim of the Akhirah, and that is one of the opinions uh, regarding that. He then goes on to a point of Arabic, which I'm not going to trouble you with too much, uh, relating to the fact that of whether or not Rahman and Rahim are actually from Rahma or not or whether they are just names that have no understandable sifa and he refutes that and gives an evidence in the statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, by mentioning that it comes in a sentence as it, as it would that it comes from the word it comes from the word ar and this is something we mentioned in the names and attributes, that the names of Allah جل, have sifat, they have attributes and characteristics through which they, we can understand their meanings and their applications. And he mentioned that some of them said that it's a Hebrew word and some of them said some other things, so he mentions them and he replies, to them, and refutes them. He refutes them, quoting Al-Qurtubi, Ta'ala, another scholar of Tafsir, who has an excellent Tafsir, Tafsir of Al-Qurtubi, mentioning that the evidence that it is from ar Rahma can be found in that which was reported by Imam al tirmidhi and he said it is authentic from Abdul Rahman Ibn Awf that he heard the Messenger of Allah وسلم, say that Allah Ta'ala said Anar Rahman I am the most merciful I created Ar-Rahim I created here, it's not clear to me. We'll go back to the, ta- the tafsir of At-Tirmidhi for the meaning of this. Uh, but Ar-Rahim generally means the ties of kinship. Then. But here, it doesn't seem, it's Allahu'ala. <laughs> we'll see what it, we'll see. We'll go back to the translation of At-Tirmidhi to see what it is. And I extracted from this a name from my names. Ah, it, it does refer to, it does refer to, yes, it does refer to the ties of kinship. It's clear at the end of the hadith. And from this, a name from one of my names was taken. So whoever keeps the ties of kinship, I keep the ties with him, and whoever breaks the ties of kinship, I break the ties with him. So this is an evidence that it is, that Ar Rahman comes from Ar Rahman. And he goes to mention several other evidences uh, for this. <coughs> he goes on also to give the evidence or to put forward the opinion that Ar-Rahim refers only to the believers. So he said that Abu Ali Al-Farisi said, Ar-Rahman is a general name for every kind of mercy that Allah is, that is unique to Allah. Ar-Rahman is a name for every kind of mercy that is unique to Allah. And Ar-Rahim is only from the point of the believers. As Allah said, وَكَانَ بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ رَحِيمًا He is towards the believers, Rahim. However, we said, as we explained in the previous class, that this has a problem. Because in other ayat of the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that he is to all mankind rahim. Uh, this is also the, the issue with this. But again, Ibn Kathir is going to narrate this several times. And he narrates, in many narrations. He says that Ibn has said, uh, and he makes a change of uh, a narration from one of the early generations that they said Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim Ar-Rahman is for all creation and Ar-Rahim is only for the believers and for that reason Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said Ar-Rahman al arsh Allah rose above the throne Because this covers all of Allah's creation to which the rahmah is applied. And he said because it only applies to the believers. However, and Ibn Kathir is going to say, now he's going to mention the problem with this opinion. He says, however, in the dua, which is reported from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Rahman at Dunya, while Akhira, Rahimahuma. The Rahman of the Dunya and the Rahman of the Akhirah and the Rahim of the Dunya and the Akhirah. And he mentions some other ayat uh, regarding this. And he goes on to mention various other <coughs> uh, points on that topic. Before he says, or after which he says, "As for ar rahim then Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala has used Rahim as a description for others than Him." And he, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala has never used Rahman nor is it permissible to name somebody Rahman. However, Allah has used Rahim for others. He's used Rahim for others. besides him. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, لَقَدْ جَاءَكُمْ رَسُولٌ مِّنْ أَنفُسِكُمْ عَزِيزٌ عَلَيْهِ مَا عَنِدْتُمْ عَلَيْكُمْ بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ رَأُوفٌ رَحِيمٌ there has come to you a messenger from yourselves It's hard on him what troubles you He is towards, he is keen to, for everything that benefits you And he is towards the believers Rahim. So the Prophet was given the title of Rahim Not the title of Ar-Rahim The Most Merciful Or the Bestower of Mercy But the title Rahim, Merciful Likewise, he mentions that mankind is also been given the title Sami' and Basir Not As-Sami' and not Al-Basir But Sami' and Basir Like Allah Izzawajal said فَجَعَلْنَاهُ سَمِيعًا بَصِيرًا He said And the conclusion therefore is that some of the names of Allah from some of the names of Allah are those which others can be named with and from some of them are those which others cannot be named with like Allah and Ar-Rahman an Al-Khalim and al razzaq and others so for this reason Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala began by saying Ar-Rahman because it is more specific to him than Ar-Rahim. Meaning that the, the most specific, the one that is the most specific is Ar-Rahman. Because this is only for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and no one has ever been called Rahman other than Allah Jalla, Or those who have, have done so out of any evil like Musaylama Al-Kathab They said we only know Rahman Al-Yamama We only know Musaylama Al-Kathab That he is Rahman So it's not permissible to take the name Rahman As for Rahim Then without Alid is permissible to say to somebody You are Rahim You are merciful So from that point of view Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala began Ar-Rahman before he began Ar-Rahim Then he said, so if it is said, since Ar-Rahman is more emphatic than Ar-Rahim, then why mention Ar-Rahim at all? And it is narrated from Ata Al-Khurasani, the meaning of which is, That there were other people who had taken the name Rahman, as we said, like Musaylama Al Kazab. So when Allah Azza wa said Al-Rahim, this cut off the understanding that Al-Rahman could be referring to other than Allah, Subhanahu wa Ta'ala. Because no one is called Rahman and Rahim except Allah. And there were some people who falsely took the name Ar-Rahman Very famously, as we said, Musaylama Al-Kaddaab The false prophet, Musaylama However, when Allah said Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim This cut off the the misconception Because there can be nobody who has the name Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim Except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala And similarly, this was narrated from Ibn Jarir, from Aqa. And he seemed to indicate that this has a, it has a wedge, and it has a, it has, an, it has a, it, it's a valid point of view. So he, again, Ibn Kathir is going to tell you what he thinks about the different narrations. He's going to tell you, I think this is a valid point of view, and so on. And then he goes on to talk about whether the Arabs knew who Ar-Rahman was or not and what the evidence for that was and several other uh, points regarding Ar-Rahman, Rahim. And you can see how long it's taking us just to get to this point. It's a very detailed discussion. So we're going to move on to Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. See the same thing. And Ibn Kathir is going to mention Ikhtilaf. He's going to mention different narrations He's going to mention authentic and inauthentic He's going to mention things narrated from the tabi'een He's going to try to go into the details of why this and why that and why not this and why not that and why this was put here and why not this put here and try to answer some of the criticisms that people might have said that, such as that the Arabs did not know who Al rahman was Because some people got confused by the statement Wamar Rahman, who is Ar Rahman? They said that this means the Arabs did not know the word Ar Rahman. And so Ar Rahim was included to explain to them who Ar Rahman was. But the correct tafsir of Wamar Rahman is that they knew who Ar Rahman was, but that they were being stubborn and obstinate. Like when you say to somebody, go and, you know, go and give this pen to Muhammad over there. I don't know who Muhammad is. He's just being obstinate and he's just being, he's just being awkward, like trying to make a statement. So the statement, Wamar Rahman, was not one of their, was not genuine from them, but they did not know who Al Rahman was. And he replies to this with a number of different issues. Does he mention every opinion? No, he doesn't. Because as we've said, there are other opinions we've seen in other books which are additional to these opinions and i have skipped quite a lot because we simply would not finish even bismillahir rahmanir rahim today if we went through everything that ibn kathir said but i want you to get a feel for the book the advantages and the disadvantages because there are disadvantages you guys are now reading ibn kathir having read tafsir al-sa'di the advantage to this is you have an idea of the rajih the correct opinion Now I'm not saying that everything a said says is correct but generally you have an idea of the correct opinion so now when you read 15 different opinions in Ibn Kathir you don't feel like you're drowning you feel a little confused because you have to go to each opinion and say is it Sahih, is it not Sahih and sometimes Ibn Kathir does not make tarjih he does not say this is correct or this is not correct he might indicate, usually sometimes the scholars say Any ways of indicating or mentioning an opinion first or mentioning an opinion last? You could mention an opinion first, and that might indicate that it's the strongest opinion in your... Some of the scholars do this in their books. The opinion they mention first, that is their opinion. With Ibn Kathir, it tends more to be the opinion he mentions last, although not always. But it tends more to be the opinion he mentions last. If he mentions a long list of them, it's often the one that he mentions last. But often he doesn't make tarjih He doesn't say, I, this, is, this is correct and this isn't correct And so you're left, if you don't have a something to ground yourself in You're left drowning in a big ocean of opinions and ikhtilaf and, and all of them seem to be related from the tabi'een and so on But there's two things we did before this to help you with Ibn Kathir The first thing that we did is the principles of tafsir by Shaykh Raslam al-Taymiyyah. So you realize that the majority of opinions where it says Mujahid said this, and Ata said this, and Ikrima said this, and Makhul said this, the majority of those are not ikhtilaf, they are not real disagreements. They are just one person focusing on one element instead of the other. That's from one side. On the other side, we read, or the other thing we did is to read Tafsir al saadi to give us a summary idea of the stronger or one of the strong opinions. And again, it's not all right, but it just gives you an idea of something you can hold on to. Okay, at the moment, I'm holding on to the idea that Bismillahir Rahmanir rahim means this. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen means this and when I see all of the different opinions of Ibn Kathir unless I see what really convinces me and really you know like shows to me that I had made a mistake then I have my you know I have someone who's told me this is right and this is wrong and this methodology you will need in every part of studying Islam in Aqeedah In fiqh especially. When we study fiqh, as we're going to do in one of the coming terms, you don't start studying fiqh by studying the iqtilaf between the malikiyah, the shafiyyah, the hanabilah, the hanafiyah. Because if you did that, you would not be left with any religion. You would be left just in complete and total confusion. But what you start Doing is first of all, when you're quite small or when you're a very, very beginner's level, your teacher just tells you this is correct, this is incorrect. No dalil, no evidence, just tells you you pray like this. Then you study the dalil for what your teacher said. Your teacher said you pray like this because the Prophet said this. Then you study within the madhab, just as a curriculum, not because you have to follow a madhab, but within the curriculum. You study the madhab as a curriculum without disagreement. Then you study the madhab with disagreement. Then you study the disagreement between the different madhab. And by doing this, you come to a conclusion of being able to handle the advanced books that contain so much disagreement. And that's why we said that Ibn Kathir is not an easy book to study. It's a beautiful book and it contains extremely important benefits but it's a book that requires you to be a real talib ilm a real student of knowledge to be able to approach it and understand it and go through it because it contains complex arguments it contains multiple different areas of disagreement it contains narrations which can be authentic or inauthentic and so you don't want to end up you know drowning in all of those opinions so you start understanding that most of those opinions are not actually contradictory and then you move on to understanding one well-known scholar's opinion regarding these ayat that is well well thought of well studied praised by the scholars and then from there you go into these differences and ibn Kathir is not even that detailed in differences of opinion Ibn Kathir, I would consider it to be a medium-level book in terms of differences of opinion. There are books that are much, much more complicated even than Ibn Kathir. Ibn Kathir does not go into a great deal of detail in many things. The scholars considered his tafsir to be quite summarized even though he might take 10 or 15 pages to go through Bismillahir Rahmanir rahman rahim They considered it to be quite summarized. So you build your tolerance to this and you deal with it slowly. And from this is an important lesson, and it's one of the most important lessons of today, that you can't jump into books left, right and center. And wherever you feel like it, let me just pick up a book from the shelf and read it. You need to have taken things very slowly in small and easy stages. But since Ibn Kathir is such a famous book and since it is well translated, then it makes sense for us to, talk, to just dip our toes into it over the next couple of weeks. The summary of Ibn Kathir, of course, is easier than the full tafsir. What we're doing here is the full tafsir. The summary is a little easier. But bear in mind that the summary is subject to one problem. And that is that the summary is an opinion of the one who summarized it. So you have to bear in mind, it's pretty unfair to quote an opinion of Ibn Kathir from a summary because the fact that that the one who summarized it chose a particular opinion over another indicates to you that they themselves are picking the parts they believe to be valuable from Ibn Kathir. And that's useful because they themselves are often scholars with great reputations in in the science of tafsir, so that's useful for you. But it kind of almost brings you back to Al-Imam al Not quite. But it almost brings you back to a simple tafsir again. Because you've got somebody who's going through and saying, I'm not going to say that, I'm not going to say that, I'm not going to say that. I'm not doing that here. What I'm doing is I'm missing parts that we don't have time for. But I'm reading you as much as I can, the whole part of the tafsir, as much as I can, without skipping any bits out. But I'm just skipping things that we don't, because just to give you a flavor of the whole surah, inshallah. So he says, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen He said, all of the seven Qurat. So he's going to talk about the qira'at now This is something you find in Ibn Kathir He's going to talk to you about the qira'at. All of the seven Qurra'a Put a on the Dal in Alhamdulillah Are there only seven Qurra? What did we say about that? We said there are more than seven. Does that indicate that there might be some that didn't? Let's see what Ibn Kathir says. He said all of the seven put a dhamma on the dal in alhamdulillah. Meaning that it is mubtada and khabr. It is a subject and a predicate now that might sound if you studied Arabic that will make sense if you haven't probably even in English that will not make sense but if you studied English grammar meaning a subject and a predicate Alhamdulillah all praises for Allah and it is narrated from Sufyan ibn Uyaynah and another Ru'bah ibn al-Ajjaj that they said Alhamdulillah lillah alhamdulillah based on the fact that there is a verb missing from the beginning, so if you say alhamdulillah there is no verb missing from the beginning, it's all praise it's for Allah, it's just a simple sentence with a subject predicate, it's it's a subject predicate, simple, non-verbal sentence, no issues at all if you say Alhamda Lillah, now you have to explain why you put a Fathah there and the explanation would be that there is a verb missing. And he goes into another uh, I and if there's a verb missing, perhaps it would be something like I give all praise to Allah or I say that all praise is for Allah or I affirm I bear witness that all praise is for Allah something like that and there is another uh, Qira'a which he mentions and then he says about this Qira'a he says it has Supporting narrations, however, it is Shad. And this, this Qira'ah that I haven't mentioned to you, he says to you, that this third one that he mentions, it is Shad. What did we say Shad is? It's not compliant with the normal rules of Arabic grammar, or it doesn't match the Mus'haf of Uthman and so on. It doesn't fulfill the conditions of a Qira'ah to be authentic, so it is Shad. And it's narrated from al Hassan ibn Zayd ibn Ali that he read Al-hamdi lillah. Alhamdi lillah. Alhamdi Lillah. Alhamdi Lillah. The third one was Alhamdu Lillah. I believe. The third one was... Or something similar to that. And the fourth one, Alhamdi Lillah. These are all narrations which don't match, or most of them don't match. Alhamda, Lillah, that's that fine. Might, you, have a, you have a point for it. The others, then it becomes different. If it is Alhamdi Lillah, then it would appear to be. An example of the first word following the grammar of the of the second something like that so he gives you some information about the Qiraat not just the well-known Qiraat but he also gives you the Qiraat as shada, the rare Qiraat the ones that are not commonly known and not commonly recited and are not considered to be part of the Quran He said, and Abu Ja'far ibn Jarir Rahimahullah said that the meaning of Alhamdulillah is a shukr lillahi khaliçan dunasairah ma yu'badu min dunih He said, it means to offer thanks to Allah alone instead of everything which is worshipped besides Him. It is to offer thanks to Allah alone instead of everything that is worshiped besides him and everything which he has created and instead of everything which he has created because of the blessings which he has given to his servants from the blessings that cannot be counted by a number cannot be represented by a number and that no one but Allah is able to count them and the blessings of Allah in making tools available for his obedience and allowing the limbs of those people who are required to follow Islam to perform his obligations And that which He has provided for them in their dunya of provision. And He has nourished them with the pleasures of life. Despite the fact that they did not deserve those pleasures to be given to them. Along with what He informed them of, i.e. revealed to the prophets and the messengers and that which He called them to from the causes which will lead them to eternal life in paradise with a blessing or with blessings that will never end so to our Lord is praise for all of that in the beginning and the end he says and Ibn Jarir said so he's mentioning two different opinions from Ibn Jarir Tabari. All of these are narrated in Tafsir al-Tabari. Alhamdulillah, Is praising Allah with the praise that he praised himself with. He's praising Allah with the praise that he praised himself with. And through that which Allah commanded his servants... To praise him with, as though he said, Say, Alhamdulillah. As though he is saying to them, Say, Alhamdulillah. And it has been said that it is a statement, that that the statement of, of a person when they say, Alhamdulillah, is to praise him with all of his perfect names and his lofty attributes. It is said, Ibn Jari says, it is said that it is to praise him with all of his names and his lofty attributes and when he said ash lillah or when it is said ash lillah thanks to Allah this is praise for him for his blessings and his support that he has given so it's as if he is saying it's as if he is saying that the difference between alhamd and shukr is that a shukr is specific to the blessings and alhamd is general for all things, I and mean, Al-Shukar is specific to the blessings that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has given you. And Ibn Abbas said, "Alhamdulillah is the statement of every grateful person, I and mean, if a person wishes to be grateful, then they must say alhamdulillah." And al-Qurtubi uses evidence. For the correctness of somebody saying "alhamdulillahi," use this as the correctness of somebody saying "alhamdulillahi" in gratitude. And he "alhamdulillahi shukra. "alhamdulillah" out of out of gratitude. However, that which Ibn Jarir said, and he now Ibn Kathir he is making, and he he's going to make a criticism of what Ibn Jarir said. it has some question in it fee another it has some some doubt in it because it is clear it has become famous from many of the scholars of the later generations that alhamd it is to praise allah by his attributes those which are which only uh, are only relating to him and those which have an effect on others and as for gratitude, gratitude is only in response to something that you are given. And hamd is with the heart and with the tongue and with the limbs. So here he goes on to, is alhamd the same as a shukr? And he comes and he says, when Ibn Jarir indicated that it's okay to say alhamdulillahi shukra, meaning that the meaning of al is Ash-Shukr, he said this has some issue in it, this has some issue in it, because it's clear that Ash-Shukr is only in response to, gratitude is in response to something you're given, you say I'm grateful, you don't say I'm grateful when someone hasn't given you anything, I'm grateful, whereas Alhamd is not restricted to whether you have been given or you haven't been given. And then he mentions a chapter on the different statements of the scholars regarding the early generations regarding Alhamd. And that takes a significant number of pages, three or four pages, where he talks about the different statements of the scholars regarding Alhamd. So he narrates from the early generations what they said about the word Alhamd. He then comes on to Rabbil Alameen. And he says... And so again, you can distinguish that Ibn Kathir, really, you can divide it into two in some ways. Those things which Ibn Kathir himself is saying and those things which he is narrating, the ones which he is narrating are harder than the ones where he himself says it. Like, so when I quoted you the initial explanation of al it was easier than when he started to go into what somebody said and what somebody else said and what somebody else said. So the statements of Ibn Kathir himself are somewhat easier to understand than the statements where he narrates from other people. Especially because you have to read it two or three times to be able to understand which bits Ibn Kathir actually agrees with and which bits he doesn't agree with. He may mention a beautiful statement and you're like, wow, that's amazing, and then say this statement is not correct. So you have to be careful about that. So listen to what Ibn Kathir himself says about Rabbil Alameen and then listen again at how he then expands that out to what other people said about Rabbil Alameen. He says, Ar-Rab is Al-Malik Al-Mutasarrif. He is the one who owns everything and the one who controls everything. And it is used linguistically, meaning not necessarily for Allah, but linguistically to refer to As-sayyid, the master, the one in charge. And upon the one who is al-mutasarrif Islah, The one who is taking actions or doing things in order to bring about rectification. And all of these are correct to say about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he's saying that This is linguistically We say A rab is a Sayyid And that is why we say Rabbul Usra Until this day You call the person Who is head of the family al Usra Because it's permissible To use the word Rabb For someone If it is Attached to something else Like Lord of the manor Lord of the house Lord of the family But it's not permissible To say to somebody Lord So until now We still say that the person in charge of the family, the head of the household is Rabbul Usra. And what do we mean by that? We mean Sayyid al-Usra. That he is the master or the one in charge of the household. He is Sayyid al-Usra. And he said, using this as a Sayyid for Allah is valid, because Allah is a Sayyid. And therefore the meaning of Rabb, meaning Sayyid linguistically, is valid for Allah. So this is giving you a methodology regarding the names of Allah. So the name which comes to mind when you say al-Rab is al-Malik al-Mutasarrif, the one who is the owner and the one who has the authority to do what they want. And that applies to Allah. Linguistically, we also say that al-Rab is a sayyid the master or the, the one in charge. And that is valid to say for Allah because a sayyid is a valid, thing to say about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah is the master, the one in control. And the one who goes about what they do, who does what they do in order to bring about rectification. And that is true for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because Allah azza wa jal, all of his actions have a wisdom in them which will bring about good. Good. And that is why we say to about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, evil is not attributed to you. Because even though Allah creates evil, every single evil that He creates is for a purpose of achieving some good. Even if that good is simply to know the difference between truth and falsehood. But every single thing that Allah does is intended to bring about. A good or a piece, something which is just or something which is true and valid. He says, Ibn Kathir, and it's not right to use or it's not allowed to use a rub for other than Allah, except when you say with idafa, as the Lord of the Lord of. In which case, you can say, the Lord of the house the Lord of this, the Lord of that. But as for saying the Lord or Lord, this is only said for Allah Azza wa Jal. And it is said that ar rabb is Ismullah Al-A'azam. And this is another opinion. It is said that ar rabb is the greatest name of Allah. As for Al-A'lamin, it is the plural of Alam. Plural of alam, which means world, and it refers to everything which exists except Allah Azawajal. And the word alam itself is a plural. There is no singular for it. And he says the different worlds, he talks about the different worlds of all the different categories of creation, like the world of the heavens and the world of the sea and the land. And every generation and every century that goes by is known as a a world, an alam every generation that goes by and every century that goes by is a separate alam like when we talk about the world today or the world of our generation or the world in our time so he mentions two so it's an extension and imam al sadi he just said the world's everything besides allah ibn kathir he gives you a little bit of extra information he says the world of the heavens, the world of the, s- the land, the world of the sea, the world of the centuries that go by and the different worlds of the generations that pass by. Then he narrates again with a chain of narration from Bishr al-Amara, from Abi Rauq, from al-Tahak, from Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, Alhamdulillah All praises for Allah The one who He created everything In the heavens and the earth What is in them And what is between them What we know And what we do not know So he's giving you A narration From Ibn Abbas radiAllahu anhuma To give you some evidence For what he said He said and in the narration of Saeed ibn Jubair and Ikrimah, from Ibn Abbas, Lord of the Jinn and the Men. And Ibn Abbas said, Lord of the Jinn and the Men. And likewise said Saeed ibn Jubair and Mujahid and Ibn Jurayj, And it is narrated something similar from Ali ibn Abi Talib And Ibn Abi Hatim said, with a chain that is not reliable. Again, Ibn Kathir is gonna give you the, the ins and outs of the chain, of what is valid and what isn't valid. So he's gonna say, Ibn Abi Hatim said, but with a chain that should not be relied upon. And then he goes on to talk about, they uh, are al-alameen, are al-jin, and uh, al-ins and he goes on to relate another narration from al-farrah and from abu urbayt and two scholars of tafsir that the alam refers to those things which understand meaning mankind and the jinn the angels and the devils and you don't say for the animals alam, and it seems like ibn kathir does not support this narration because the one that he explained is everything in the heavens and the earth besides allah But he's now quoting other opinions and you can feel that he doesn't support this narration. He started it by saying this is narrated by a chain that is not reliable. And he mentioned some of the people who said this. So you get the feeling that it's not... And the first one that he mentioned here was the the one that... Because he mentioned it from his own speech. He didn't bring a quote. And then he brought the quote of Ibn Abbas to support it. Then later on, he mentions other opinions and you feel like the ones in the middle, he doesn't give as much weight to them. And that is the opinion that Al-Alamin refers to the jinn and the angels and mankind and not to the animals. But you feel that Ibn Kathir feels more generally than that because he says himself in his own speech, it refers to everything besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then he mentions some opinions about how many worlds there are. That supposedly there are four, 13 worlds or 14 worlds. or Meaning, the worlds of different... I mean, whether it's the sea and the land and so on. But again, these narrations are... Like he says, this is a statement which is gharib. After he mentions the number of alam and there's 14 or 13, he says, وَهَذَا كَلَامٌ غَرِيبٌ this is a strange statement yahtaju mithluhu ila dalil sahih you cannot say this without an authentic dalil so he will mention opinions from some of the scholars of tafsir that are extremely weak and then in conclusion he will say this is a strange statement and you cannot say something like this without having a delil. you cannot say there are 13 worlds without having a dalil and evidence that they that this exists i'm going to move on now uh, ar-rahman al rahim he already spoke about but let's just see what he He adds to it. He says we have already mentioned the meaning of Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim in the topic of the Basmala, and there's no need to repeat it here. That's what Ibn Kathir says Then he says, al Qurtubi said that Allah described himself with Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim after saying Rabbil Alameen as though he is Joining between at Tarheeb between encouragement and between making you fearful of him. Like when he said, Nabbi Ibadi Anni Anal Rafur Rahim wa anna alabi hu al agab Inform my servants that I am the most merciful or that I am the most forgiving, the most merciful, and that my punishment is the severe punishment. So why did he add this statement of Al-Qurtubi here? Because when he spoke about Ar-Rahman Ar-Raheem in Bismillah, he wasn't speaking about the relation between Ar-Rahman ar rahim and between Rabbil Alameen. Now, the only thing he has left to add is the link between the two. Because that's what he hasn't mentioned And he mentions That it is From the point of at tarheeb Or Tarheeb Meaning that Rabbil Alameen Makes you Fearful And that Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim Makes you Hopeful Makes you encouraged And in reality Rabbil Alameen Is more general Than just fear and Rabbil Alameen Is more Comprehensive It contains fear It contains love It contains hope but if you were to say between Al-Rahmanul Rahim and Maliki Yomiddin, this would be more obvious. That Maliki Yomiddin is intended to put fear and ar Al-Rahman al Rahim is intended to give hope. But yes, even from Rabbil Alameen, it does certainly give you an element of fear as well as an element of hope. He said that al Qur'an to be said ar Rab contains fear and he makes you scared, and Al Rahmanul Rahim contains encouragement. And in Sahih Muslim from Abi Hurairah, Messenger of Allah said, if the believer knew what Allah had prepared of punishment, nobody would ever hope of entering Jannah. And if the Kafir knew what Allah had of mercy, he, nobody would ever have despaired of his mercy. And the hadith is in Sahih Muslim. So he mentions this opinion. Then he goes on to say, Maliki Yawmiddin. Some of the reciters said Malik and others said Malik. And both are Sahih Mutawatir in the seven Qiraat. So he's going to say to you that Malik and Malik are both very famous among the seven Qiraat. Bear in mind, as a point of benefit, that the benefit that the seven Qiraat themselves have variations in them. So it's not the case that, for example, Hafs and Asim is always read the same way. Sometimes there is more than one way of reading Hafs and Asim depending on the student who narrates from Hafs one of the ways if i'm not mistaken it's been a while since i did this but there is a style of hafs of stopping at every sukun after which there is hamz hamza so for example saying rabbus samawati wal art stopping briefly without taking a breath rabbus samawati rabbus samawati wal Art, for example and even though this is more famous from the likes of khalaf and hamza and others it also exists within a narration of hafs from another student other than the the main student that we recite from that we the normal narration of hafs that we recite from so even within the scholars there is a disagreement but it is well established within the seven major styles of recitation the recitation of malik and the recitation of Malik. And then he goes on to talk about some other more complex elements of uh, recitation um, and that some people read other ways which are much more rare than that. So the well-known are Malik and Malik and after that, there are some which are much less well known than that. One is putting a sukkun on the lamb, so that would be like milk uh, and reading like almost a year after the calf. So melki, melki and other ones uh, which he mentions, din, and something. Uh, like Allah Malaka Yawm al Allah is the one who owns as in a verb rather than a name Malaka Yawm and others but these are he said this one is this last one Malaka Malaka Yawm he said this is Wahada Shadhun Gharibun Jiddan this is extremely extremely strange like the, nobody from the major scholars of recitation was ever known to say Malakhayomaddin. However, it's narrated from as Shad, I mean it's not part of the Qur'an, not part of the main part of the Qur'an, but it's narrated from some of the, the Quran. So you see that Ibn Kathir is going to go out into the different branches of Kira, starting with the well known and moving on to the very until he finishes with the strangest of the strange. He then mentions, after he's finished with the strange uh, reports, he goes on to talk about where the name Al Malik or Al Malik is taken from, and he mentions regarding this two. Opinions. One that it is taken from Al Milk, and one that it is taken from Al Mulk. Uh, To the best of my knowledge, if I can explain this in a good way in English, uh, that the if it is taken from al-milk then it means ownership and from malaka yamliku milkan like the statement of allah Azzawajal, inna nahnu wa man alaiha wa we will inherit the earth and everything that is in it and to us you will be returned And it is also, he says, also taken from al-mulk, which is dominion. As Allah said, "Liman To who does the dominion belong today? And that all of it is within the kingdom of Allah subhanahu wa taala. So one emphasis, and one of them emphasizes ownership, and one of them emphasizes that it is within the kingdom of Allah subhanahu wa taala. Allah has the control and the and the. He can do what he wants with it. And that everything will return back to him. So it's within his kingdom. And one of them emphasizes ownership, that Allah owns it. He says, and specifying Al mulk, specifying that Allah is malik on the Yawm al Deen, i.e., the day of reckoning. Does not negate the fact that he is Malik of everything else. And this is something As Sa'di also mentioned. This is something As Sa'di also mentioned that just because he is the Malik of Yawmud Deen does not mean he is not the Malik of every other day. Because, and he gives an evidence Ibn Kathir, he says, because it is already been mentioned that he is Rabbul Alameen. And if it's mentioned that he is Rabbul Alameen If it's been mentioned that he is Rabbul Alameen Therefore It must mean that he is the Malik of every single day Because that is the only way he can be Rabbul Alameen If he is the owner and he has the command and the dominion on every single day And therefore this indicates to us that the statement Maliki Yawm It does not mean that Allah is not the Malik of every other Day, But it is specifying that specific day. Because on that day, nobody will claim ownership of anything. And nobody will speak except with his permission. So look Al-Milk and Al-Mulk, both he's talking about. That in terms of Al-Milk, nobody will claim that I own anything on that day. And in terms of Al-Mulk, like Allah Azza wa Jalla being the sovereign, or the, the ki- like the king. In the con- one in complete control. Nobody will speak without his permission on that day. As Allah Izzawajal said, لَا يَتَكَلَّمُونَ إِلَّا مَنْ أَذِنَ لَهُ وَقَالَ صَوَّابًا Nobody will speak except the one who is given permission by al rahman And Allah Izzawajal said, وَخَشَعَتِ الْأَصْوَاتُ لِلْرَحْمَانِ فَلَا تَسْمَعُ إِلَّا hamsa that the voices will be silenced or will be lowered for Ar-Rahman and the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal ya'ti la nafsun On the day that will come in which nobody will speak except with his permission. And al narrated from Ibn Abbas radiallahu Yawm That he said, no one will own anything on that day. Or he said, nobody will have any decision or any ruling. Nobody will judge anything for anyone on that day except him as they used to do in the dunya, as they used to either judge or as they used to own in the dunya. He said, and Yawm al-Din, is the day of accounting for creation. And it is Yawm al-Qiyamah. Allah will judge them, i.e. a din Allah will judge them by their actions. If they are good, then the, the, the outcome will be good. And if the actions are evil, then the outcome will be evil. Except for the one who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mercy upon. And in this, others from the Sahaba and the Tabi'een said, and it is Ibn Kathir says, Wahua zahir." It's obvious and this is clear as to why Allah said, Yamuddeen. Because a deen is judgment in fairness and justice. And therefore, it is the day in which Allah Azzawajal will judge the creation. If they have done good, they will get good. If they have done bad, they will get bad unless Allah forgives them. If they've done good, they will get good. If they've done bad, they will get bad unless Allah forgives them. So again, you have the right aqeedah in there. This is a quote from Ibn Abbas, عنهما, which clearly shows to you that Allah can forgive the sinful as opposed to the opinion of the Khawarij and the Mu'tazila and others who said that there is no forgiveness for the one who does the major sins. Uh, if they die upon doing them, they die as a non Muslim. This is a refutation of this, since he says, Wa in illa man If he has done evil, then he will get evil, except the one who Allah overlooks the evil that he did. And Ibn Jarir narrated from some of them, some of them and some of the earlier generations, that the tafsir of Maliki Yawmuddin is that he is the one who is able to establish Yawmuddin. Then Ibn Jarir goes on to say that this is weak. And he began to say that this is. That these that these narrations that he that Ibn Jarir narrates is are are not strong. This brings us to another thing that we read in uh, Tafsir or in the principles of Tafsir, Shaykh Islam 'Uthaymeen, Taala, when he explained the different ways that you can prefer one opinion over the other, and that when the opinions are based on narrations, you can prefer one opinion over the other by the authenticity of the narrations. So we could say, Maliki Yawmuddin means to establish the one who is able to establish the day of judgment. However, these narrations, as Ibn Jariah said, are weak. And Ibn Jariah himself said that these narrations I have mentioned are, are weak. Then Ibn Kathir says, and this will also help you in the principles you read from Taymiyyah, the apparent... Or apparently what oh he's saying, what I can see apparently, is that there is no contradiction between this statement and the one that came before. So Ibn Kathir is saying, why did Ibn Kathir even mention an opinion that Ibn Jarir said is weak? He mentioned it to say to you that personally I don't think that there is any contradiction between these two and there's no reason why you can't take both of them together. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the sovereign of that day and the only one who will own anything on that day and also the only one who is able to establish that day and that none of these actually contradict and that everyone who said one of these opinions did not negate the other opinion this is important so the people who said that Allah is the one able to establish the day of judgment they did not say that allah is not the owner of the day of judgment they said he is the owner of the day of judgment and he is able to establish it and those who said that he is the owner did not say that he is not able to establish it so he's showing you this principle the application of this principle that we learned in the principles of tafsir that a lot of tafsir from the early generations is not contradictory and in fact When you look at it, you see that they are just focusing on one element and they are focusing on one element, but the the two are not contradictory. So there is no need to go to Ibn Jarir and say, this narration might be weaker than this narration and this one might be more authentic, because in the first place, there is no contradiction between these two opinions. But then he says yeah, I'll keep going then he says however the context of the ayah is stronger in evidencing the first opinion than the second this is the benefit here. he said there's no contradiction between them but just like Ibn Taymiyyah said just because there's no contradiction it doesn't mean that you can't prefer one of them over the other based on the context So one of them focuses the camera on one element and one of them focuses on the other element. But in reality, one of them is more deserving of focus than the other. Even though both are true and both are valid, but still one of them has more reason to focus on it than the other one. So the context of Surah Al-Fatiha indicates more, towards the concept of Allah being the owner of the day of resurrection rather than Allah being the only one who can establish the day of resurrection even though both are true it's more befitting to focus on Allah being the owner and the sovereign of the day of recompense than it is for Allah to to focus on Allah being the only one who can establish the day of recompense because if you look at the context that is what goes with the hope and the fear and the context of the ayat, the Rabb, Rabbul Alameen, and then specifically mentioning Maliki, Yawm al-Din. and the context helps, or the context is clearer in focusing upon that aspect rather than that aspect. So it's another important point that we have to bear in mind that even though we may say these two opinions are not contradictory, still one of them may be more deserving of focus than the other. And that is something that al Islam ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala also mentioned. And he mentions two ayat supporting each opinion. The first one, al Rahman. True ownership. Or true sovereignty. On that day will be for ar rahman That's for the first opinion. And the second one, oh. on the day he will say be and it is. I on the day when he will be the one to establish the day of judgment. So he's saying that. There are two ayat, both of which, one of which supports one opinion and one of which supports the other, showing that they're both valid. However, we put our focus more upon the first one because this is more in line with the context of the Surah. He said, and Al-Malik in reality, he is Allah Azza wa As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, hu Allah la ilaha illa hu Al-Malik. Al-Quddus, and in, the, and in Bukhari, a Muslim from Abu Huraira عنه, that the worst of names in the sight of Allah is a man who is called Malikul al or similarly Malik Al-Mulk when there is no Malik except Allah Azza wa And also in the Sahihain from Abu Huraira, the messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, Allah will grasp the earth and roll up the heavens in his right hand. Then he will say, I am Al-Malik, I am the sovereign. Where are the kings of the earth? Where are the tyrants? Where are the boastful? And in the Qur'an, لِمَنِ الْمُلْكُ الْيَوْمِ لِلَّهِ الْوَاحِدِ القهار. So as for others being called king in the dunya, then this is not that they are the true, they are truly and the true sovereign who is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But this is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given it to them. Like in the ayah, إِنَّ اللَّهَ قَدْ بَعَثَ لَكُمْ Talut Malika Allah has established for you Talut as a king Not as the king who is the sovereign of all But as someone who has been given their kingdom by Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala And then he establishes in the Sahihain The use of the word Malik for other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala either it's not haram for someone to call themselves a king so he wants to establish that it's not haram for someone to call themselves a king rather Allah Jalla called people in the Quran kings and in the sahihain uh, the example of the ones who are al-muluk al-usra al-asirain so, there are some examples he's giving of the use of the word kings in the Quran and in Sahih al Bukhari and Muslim. But he explains that this is not, they are not truly any sovereign, but their sovereignty is given to them by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in a limited, in a limited sense. He says, an a deen is al jaza' wal hisab. A deen, it is reward and accounting. As Allah said, On that day, Allah will give them their true recompense. And He said, That we are the ones who will take them to account, and we are the ones who will reward them. And in the hadith, al-kais Mandana nafsahu wa amila alima ba'dil That the intelligent person is the one who takes himself to account, and dana from deen, takes himself to account, and acts upon, and acts, does actions, for what will come in the hereafter. And he says, meaning taking himself to account. As Umar said, take yourself to account before you are taken to account and weigh your deeds before they are weighed for you. And prepare for the great, and he's still from the statement of Umar, and prepare for the great, when your deeds will be presented to you, the great presentation of deeds, when they are presented to, when they are presented in front of the one who does not or is not nothing is hidden from your actions. Yama eedin tuaradun la taqfa minkum khafiya. On the day that you your deeds will be presented, nothing, not even the smallest thing will be hidden from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Quickly we'll go on to wa <laughs> We said we don't expect that like we'll be able to finish I mean, too much because subhanAllah the amount of content is considerable we just want to get ideas we just want to link sort of okay I get now how Ibn Kathir works I understand what he does I understand the benefits I understand uh, why he uses certain things why he brings in certain things I understand that he's very fond of quoting a hadith and that's why Ibn Kathir is considered to be a tafsir bil ma'thur tafsir by the Quran and the Sunnah And that's that's what Ibn Kathir is known for. He's not known for a tafsir bil-ra'i. Tafsir by his mind, just what he thinks of it, that he writes it down. Or tafsir by some other means. And his thing is a tafsir bil ma'thur, Tafsir by what is narrated, by narrations. So it's full of narrations telling you what did someone say, what did someone say, what did someone say, who said this, who do I prefer. Why do we prefer one over the other? Iyyaka Nabudu wa iyyaka Nastain, he said. The seven reciters and the majority read a on Iyaka, and he doubling the ya, Iyaka. And Amr Ibn Fayyid read it along with a uh, any yani yani Iyak without yak, he said, and this recitation is shadda, and yani it's not acceptable, and it's not within the main body of the Quran, and it is marduda, it is rejected because iya is the light of the sun, any yani iya. So when you read "Iyak is the light of the sun and not iyaka which is you And some of them read or some of them read it AyaKa, AyaKa na'budu wa with a with a, a fatha at the beginning and some of them read Hayyaka, with a ha instead of a Hamza. Hayyaka, instead of a, a Hamza, Iyaka. Where the ha indicates the Hamza, because in certain elements of Arabic, it is allowed to replace a Hamza with a ha, and he gives a line of poetry to prove that. But these are not qiraat which are well-known. The well-known qiraat, all of them are Iyaka. Iyaka, with a Hamza and a Shedda on the ya. However, there are some rejected ones. There are some rejected ones including Iyak, And likewise, there are some ones that are rare without being rejected. I mean, they're just considered to be rare. Um, and not part of the main body of the... You know, they, they're considered to be shad. They are not part of the main body of the Qur'an. Uh, including hayyaka na'budu wa hayyaka nasta'in. like and he mentions a line of poetry in which the poet says and he And so he mentions that the poet says instead of saying he said so it's linguistically it's okay but it doesn't match the it doesn't match the mushaf of uh Uthman, and therefore it is he said by putting a fatha on the noon, at the beginning of the word. In the recitation of everyone except for Yahya, with An Al-A'mash. And both of them read it with a kasra, meaning nista'een. And it is the Arabic of Bani Asad and Rabi'ah and Bani Tamim. And Bani Asad and Rabi'ah and Bani Tamim Read Nista'in and not Nesta'in. Yani that was their language. That was their Arabic. That's how they used to speak Arabic. It's a totally valid way of speaking Arabic. That's how they used to speak Arabic in their, uh, what do you want to call it, branch of the Arabic language. I don't think you can call it an accent. It's more like a, a sub branch of the Arabic language. However, the majority of the reciters read it as Nesta'in. And there is, you know, there's nothing wrong with the Kesara. And it's not, it's not wrong. It's valid as a, as a branch of Arabic that is narrated from three tribes, Bani Asad and Rabia and Bani Tamim, that their Arabic was to say nistain and not Nasta'een. He said Ibadah in language, the word Ibadah or the word worship in the Arabic language, it comes from Dhulah, comes from Lowering yourself or humbling yourself As you say طريق مُعَبَّد This road is مُعَبَّد This road is uh, lowly uh, The low road, something like that The lowly road or the low road Lowering yourself And you see, you say بَعِيرٌ مُعَبَّد this camel is Mu'abbad meaning it has been completely under it's, it's a submissive camel a submissive camel so you call it Ba'irun Mu'abbad a and in the Sharia it is an expression for everything which gathers together the perfection of love and submissiveness and fear and every action which indicates love, submissiveness and fear is an act of worship he said and Iyaka the object of the sentence because Iyaka here is the object of the sentence comes, is put before for two reasons and it is put before and it's repeated for two reasons so he gives two reasons why Iyaka, first of all, why does Iyaka come first? First of all, why does Iyaka come first and why is Iyaka repeated? Why is it not na'buduka wa And why is it not iyyaka na'budu wa nasta'in? Why say iyyaka na'budu wa iyyaka nasta'in? Why repeat those two? He says. Because of the importance of them, and because of the importance of it only being for Allah, and because of Al Hasr, because it's only for Allah. Meaning la na'budu illa iyak. We only worship you. And we only put our trust in you. And this is the perfection of obedience to Allah. And everything in the religion returns to these two meanings. And this is as some of the early generations said, Al-Fatiha is the secret of the Quran. And Al-Fatiha is the, sir here, maybe not the secret, sir here, it almost means like the whole of the Quran, like it's the word sir, it means secret, but here, sir al-Qur'an, like the, like the, the kind of the key, the summary, like everything that the Qur'an contains, the, the, the sort of the, if you were to summarize down the Qur'an to like a meaning, say this is like the, the, the secret meaning, the meaning that is all the way through the Qur'an, the essence of the Qur'an. Then the essence of the Qur'an is Surah Al-Fatiha. And the essence of Surah Al-Fatiha is, إِيَّاكَ نَعْبُدُ وَإِيَّاكَ نَسْتَعِينَ The secret of the Qur'an is Surah Al-Fatiha. And the secret of Surah Al-Fatiha is, Iyyaka na'budu wa iyyaka In other words, everything which is summarized by the whole Qur'an can be summarized in, Iyyaka na'budu wa iyyaka The whole of the Qur'an can be summarized in this. The first statement is al-bara' min shirk is to declare yourself to be free of making A partner with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in any way. And the second is to make yourself free from any ability to change anything or any power except through Allah and submitting all of your affairs to Allah Azzawaj. And this meaning is found in more than one ayah of the Quran as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, wa Worship Him and put your trust in Him. And Allah said, Say, He is Ar Rahman, we have believed in Him, and upon Him we have trusted. He said, And the fact that the statement or the, the, uh, the, 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 the ayat of the Quran have moved from talking about the third person into talking, addressing somebody in the second person. So it's previously Allah has been speaking in the third person. Praise is to Allah. Not praises to me or we praise you. But Allah has been speaking in the in the third person. Praise is to Allah. He is the Lord. He is the Lord of the worlds. He is the most merciful, the bestower of mercy. He is the master of the earth. You alone we worship. Okay, now we have a change. This is part of balagh. So Ibn Kathir, even though he doesn't do a lot of balagh in his tafsir, a lot of talk about eloquence, he's gonna highlight why is it that we suddenly change from talking in the third person to suddenly talking in the second person, to going from he, 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 to you, you, you. So what does he say? He says, this is very appropriate. Because when you have praised Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is though you have become nearer to Him. And it is though you are present in front of Him. So the praise of Allah has got you nearer to Him, to the point where you can then say directly to Him, إِيَّاكَ نَعْبُدُوا وَإِيَّاكَ نَسْتَعِينَ And it is as though, He's giving, He's not saying this happens. He says it's as though, as though you have Become nearer and nearer until you are present in front of Him, and then you say to Him, "Iya nabudu wa like a kind of tawassul. And for this reason, He said, "Iya nabudu wa nastain." And in this, there is an evidence that the beginning of Surah Al-Fatiha is informing about Allah and praising Himself. and praising his beautiful lofty attributes and guiding the servants to praise him with these things and for this reason it is not valid or the prayer of the person who does not say this is not valid while he is able to do it as it is found in the sahihain from Ubadah ibn al-samit that the prophet ﷺ said there is no prayer, لا صلاة لمن لم يقرأ بفاتحة kitab. There is no prayer for the one who does not say, فاتحة kitab And then he mentions the hadith in Sahih Muslim. From the hadith of Al-Ala ibn Abdurrahman, Mawla al-Hurqa al huraqa from his father, from Abu Huraira رضي الله عنه. The messenger of Allah said, Allah the Exalted said, the prayer has been divided between me and my servant into two pieces. Half of it is for me and half of it is for my servant. i mean, half of it is du'a al-ibadah where you are praising Allah and half of it is you directly asking Allah, du'a al masal And for my servant is what he asks. When my servant says, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, Allah says, my servant has praised me. And when my servant says, Ar Rahman Ar Rahim, Allah says, My servant has. Athna. Uh, Athna is very close to praise, but uh, it's a little bit different. Maybe uh, the first one you would say, My, my servant has said, Hamd. And he has said, Hamd. And in the second one, My servant has praised me. When he says, Maliki Yawm Din," Allah says, my servant has glorified me. Then when he says, إِيَّاكَ wa وَإِيَّاكَ nasta'in, Allah says, this is between me and between my servant. Meaning, إِيَّاكَ na'bud, This is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And إِيَّاكَ nasta'in, This is asking Allah for help. So you are, like, this is between me and my servant. And my servant will have what he asks for. Meaning, you will have that help from Allah. And when he says Allah says This is for my servant And my servant will have What he is What he has asked for And a dahaq Narrated from Ibn Abbas عنهما, About the words The meaning is It is you that we turn to In Tawheed this is narrated from Ibn Abbas. And again, this is a refutation of those people who say that tawheed was unknown to anyone. The word or the concept of tawheed was unknown to anyone until any of the recent times, and this is a new thing that you people have invented. Ibn Abbas said about iyak and abud, iyaq You alone we have tawheed of. You alone we have tawheed of, and you alone we fear. And you alone we hope in our Lord Nobody else but you You alone We have tawheed of We don't have tawheed of anyone else You alone we, we declare to be one And you alone we fear And you alone we hope in our Lord Nobody else And iyyaka nasta'een Your help we seek to obey you And to do everything that we can or, to, or, or in every single thing. Anyway, two things about Iyyaka nasta'een, you alone, we obey, or we, sorry, we ask your help to obey you, and we ask your help in everything, in everything else. And Qatada said, so he's begun the narrations, Qatada said, so the first one was from al from Ibn Abbas. Qatada said, Iyyaka na'budu wa iyyaka Allah commands you to make ibadah for him alone. And to seek his help in doing all things, all of your things. And the reason na'bud is mentioned before is because Ibadah is the main message of the ayah. Worshipping him alone is the main message. It's maqsuda, it's the main message of the ayah. And Iya canastaim is the means by which you can worship Him. So this is a different opinion to the one that Imam al-Sa'adi mentioned here. Although it's not contradictory, is that Iyaka Na'bud is the primary message of the ayah, and Iyaka nastain is the means by which you can achieve Iyaka Na'bud. And you can achieve worshiping Allah by seeking help from Him alone. And that the most importance is given to that which is given preference in the speech. Um, And so Allah begins with the most important and then the next important. So, Iyyaka na'bud and Iyyaka nasta'in. And this is similar to what Imam al sadi mentioned. Uh, Rahimullah ta'ala. One more or two or three more points were mentioned. If it is said, what is the meaning of the noon? Why do we say, you alone, we worship? Why do we not say, Iyyaka a'bud? أَسْتَعِينَ Why do we say we? Why do we not say I? Then even if it is plural, because even if it's plural, the one who is saying it is just one person. And if it is for any any like if it's like because there are there are different reasons why you would say we. You might say we because you're more than one person. Okay, like you and me. But you're just one person saying this, so you're not more than one. So why do you use we? Maybe it's for Ta'zim to say how great you are, that me, the great, amazing person worships you. That's not befitting for this statement. It's not befitting, you're lowering yourself before Allah and you're saying the royal we, you know, like we are not amused, you know, like we are not, like you're speaking about yourself with we. He said, this has been answered, that the meaning of this is to say that all of your servants who truly worship you, of which I am one of them, we alone we worship you and we alone we ask for, we ask you, uh, you alone we worship and you alone we, uh, you alone we ask for, for help. So he's saying, it's as though you're saying that all of your true servants, all of your true worshippers, this is what they do. And I am one of those true worshippers. Especially if you're praying in jama'ah or you are the imam, because here you are, speaking that the people here gathered together to pray, all of us are worshipping you and all of us are asking for your help. So it's as though you are begging Allah by the fact that there is more than one of you who is doing this. It's not just me. Maybe I'm, you know, a sinful person and so on. It's not just me asking you this, but also the whole of your servants are asking you that they worship you alone and they're asking for your help. So it's as though you're telling about yourself and about your brother believers that they worship Allah with the worship that is, that they were created for this purpose, uh, and that brings about all, or that all good comes about uh, through it. And then he goes on to mention other opinions, which again, you get the opinion that Ibn Kathir doesn't really agree with them completely. Like the one who said it's for ta'zim, it is for honoring yourself because when you worship Allah that is where all honor comes from they said when you worship Allah all honor comes from worshiping Allah so when you worship Allah it is befitting for you to speak about yourself with honor because you're the one who really deserves honor because you're worshiping Allah and this also uh, Has, it has its its problems with it and Ibn Kathir goes on himself to mention some of those You can just finish Iyaka na'budu or Iyakna because there's one paragraph left or two. He mentions Ibn Kathir, he goes on to mention the virtue of being a worshipper of Allah because Iyaka Na'bud makes you Abd and he makes you Abid, a worshipper and someone who is an abd a servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the true sense of the word and he mentions the virtue of this in when Allah azzawajal said Alhamdulillah all praises to Allah who sent down upon his servant his worshipper Muhammad sallallahu wa the book wa qama yadu', and when the servant of Allah called upon him and subhanallah. So he, I mean, when Allah wished to speak about the Prophet Sallallahu in the most noble of terms, he spoke about him using the word abd, servant. With regard to the book that was revealed to him and when he gave da'wah to the people and when the isra happened uh, to him, in all of these cases Allah Subhanahu wa Taala speaks about the Prophet Sallallahu with the word abd. And this tells you the virtue of servitude to Allah, Azzawajal, of being a true servant of Allah uh, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the statement of Allah, Wa'abud rabbaka hatta yatiyaka Worship your Lord until the moment of certainty, i.e., death, uh, comes to you. He then mentions an incorrect opinion of Al Razi in his tafsir. And you know that Al Razi was not upon the sunnah. Uh, And he mentions his opinion and then he refutes the opinion. So, this is also important to note that Ibn Kathir will quote from the people of Tafsir who are not upon the Sunnah and then refute their opinion. So, he quotes from Al Razi when Al Razi said that servitude is better than prophethood. And he doesn't mean that people are better than prophets, but he means that the state, that, that using the word Abd is better than using the word. Rasul for the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and he says and this statement is wrong and his evidence for it is weak it has nothing nothing comes out of it even though Ar-Razi did not declare it to be weak and did not respond to it and he didn't he himself didn't say it and some of the Sufis said And he quotes some of the Sufiya in some of their opinions any that with regard to ibadah that ibadah is achieving good or or put, or keeping punishment away from yourself and then he goes on to uh, to talk about or to reply to this and he said this statement of theirs is also weak And he said that, they, that we worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because of his perfect attributes. Uh, and for this reason, the person who prays says, I pray for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even though it is for achieving reward and for awe. Uh, or, or. And if it was for the mere reason of achieving reward, the prayer would not be valid. And so some of them said, we only pray to receive reward. And Sufia Ajib, because he mentions this opinion from them. And on the other side, from them are those who say, we, we don't pray, we don't care about reward. We only pray for the sake, we do everything for the sake of the love of Allah. So this is wrong and that is wrong. I mean, there are two extremes that are both wrong. One is when you say, we only pray for the love of Allah and we don't care about, we don't hope for His reward and we don't fear His punishment. And from them are those who said that the only reason we pray is to get a reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Ibn Kathir tells you that what you should be saying is that we pray for the sake of Allah, we hope for His reward, and we fear His punishment. And that is the balance between love and hope and fear, um, and so on. And he said, others responded to them and said, that the fact that worship is for Allah does not mean that we don't hope for reward and we don't wish to be kept away from his punishment. And for this reason, the Arabi, the Bedouin said, I cannot murmur like you murmur. He said to the Prophet I can't murmur like you and Mu'adh murmur. He's a Bedouin, he did not like, you know that he means the adkar. and he said, I cannot murmur like you murmur and Mu'adh murmurs. But I ask Allah for Jannah, and I seek refuge from the Hellfire. And the Prophet ﷺ said, "It is these two things that we murmur about." So the Bedouin came, like as they are very rough and tough, and said, "You know what? I can't understand what you murmur about and what Mu'adh is murmuring about in his Salah. But I ask for Jannah, and I ask Allah to keep me away from Jahannam." And the Prophet ﷺ said, "It is these two things that we murmur about." So this is an evidence for the middle path that we neither say that the only reason, prayer is not for Allah, prayer is for reward. It's a one by one exchange, you know, like, I pray, I get reward, that's it. I don't do it for the sake of Allah. And those who said that I don't care about the reward, I don't care about any reward, and I don't fear Allah will ever punish me, but rather the joining between them, when we say we pray for Allah, Hoping for his reward and fearing for his punishment. And then he said, And that we don't have any more time for. So this is just, what is the purpose behind this? I want you to understand again. The Purpose behind what we've done today is to give you experience of Ibn Kathir, his tafsir. The purpose is not to go through everything, but just to give you experience so you know your own level. If you find Ibn Kathir understandable and you feel like you can approach it, include it within the things that you read. If you feel like you struggled to get through that today, even though that's probably down to me, then begin primarily focusing upon the easier tafsir that give you just a one line or two lines or a paragraph and then move up slowly. And the slower you move up, eventually you will get to Ibn Kathir. And then you will find Ibn Kathir to be easy. And then you will get inshallah ta'ala to what is beyond Ibn Kathir. From Al-Qurtubi and Al-Tabari and, and many, many other books of Tafsir along the way. And then beyond that to the statements of the Sahaba and the Tabi'een and so on. And you will find that easy if you take it in steps. But you imagine now if we had read that Tafsir without having prior read Tafsir al-Sa'di, without having prior studied the principles of Tafsir, It's not easy to go through. And I saved you from some of the more difficult bits to the best of my ability, but really it's not an easy thing to go through. And I tell you openly, I openly say to you that when I read Tafsir ibn Kafir, I still find myself circling, underlining, putting question marks, going back to the sheikh and saying, Sheikh well, I don't understand what Ibn Kathir said here. I don't understand what Ibn Kathir said here. Is this correct? Is this not correct? Using the muhaqqq, that is the person who makes commentary to see what he says about Ibn Kathir and what does he say about this narration and that narration, it's not an easy thing to be able to do. So you take it in stages. But I want you to be able to use this book because it is one of the few books that is comprehensively available in English. Generally, this level of book would only be available in Arabic And there are very few comprehensive, complicated books available in English Very few Um, Even only it was only very recently that fath al-Bari was translated In the explanation of Sahih al-Bukhari Very, very few things that have been translated at that level Ibn Kathir is one of them So you should not ignore it Because if you ignore it, you're ignoring something which is extremely, extremely valuable And there for you to be able to take So you benefit from Ibn Kathir But you benefit it after you've tied yourself to a simple explanation that you can understand And then you move on through Ibn Kathir Slowly looking at each opinion Does Ibn Kathir himself approve of it or does he refute it? So sometimes you have to go through and circle something in red and say and highlight with a little arrow and say Ibn Kathir just said that this is This is not a, not a valid statement. This is a weird statement and so on. So a lot of careful reading and a lot of checking and a lot of compa- comparing and a lot of going back to other books and with that you will benefit immensely from Tafsir Ibn Kathir as we said as Shaykh Ibn Bazr rahimahullah ta'ala, used to say Ibn Kathir is one of the books that I read from beginning to end, and then I start reading it again because of the huge benefit that it contains. So inshallah, I hope that has been understood. We have to go now, because we are already late. Allah knows best. One small thing Khwani, uh, I forgot to tell you, and I was supposed to tell you. Today is the last day for submission of the assignment, I believe. I will accept submissions until monday but there will be marks taken off for those who don't submit it today that's fair because if i said to you that i will not accept some people will say oh but 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 like what about this what about this and i needed and i had this and the camp and all this stuff was going on that's unfair to the people who worked hard to get it done today because they may turn around and say well i submitted it without finishing it because i wanted it done today so we will take marks off for submitting it up to Monday, but I will not look at the submissions until, until Monday, inshallah ta'ala. So you have until Monday to submit it, but if you submit it after the deadline, uh, which is the 7th, I believe, which is today, uh, then uh, we will deduct some marks because of late submission, but we'll still accept it. After Monday, it will not work. Allah knows best. Salat al ala